Elijah was a great man of prayer. The Lord used him to bring about many miracles in his day. In the New Testament, it says that Elijah was just like us. But how can this be? We do not typically see miracles happening as they did for Elijah, so how is what James said true? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today we begin a study of the life and personality of Elijah the prophet, as it is recorded in 1 Kings. In today's message, we'll actually see how we as Christians are called to be like a man who the scriptures say was just like us. Well, Phil, today we begin a new series of studies in the life and ministry of Elijah the prophet. That's always exciting. What are some of the things our listeners will learn from the life of this great man? Well, Mark, I can't wait. I always love to begin any new study in any part of Scripture. And what a great man Elijah was, how much he has to teach us about the life of prayer, about boldness in the face of spiritual enemies, about the worship of the one true God and not following after idols, also about how God meets you in a time of weakness and brokenness. And all of this really is pointing us in the direction of Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet of all. Well, in today's message, though, you quote from the New Testament book of James, and you say, Elijah was a man just like us. But as you look at all the things that uh, Elijah did, you have to kind of wonder if that's really true. Well, it's an amazing thing that James said, really. I think apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't know if he would have had the boldness to say it. Is that really true? Elijah, I mean, this great miracle worker and mighty man of God, he was a man just like us? Well, yes, it's true. He was an ordinary human being who can show us what it means really to depend upon God. And I think the main thing James wanted to show was here was a man of prayer. Here was a man who knew his own weakness. It knew how much he needed to depend on the grace of God and was bold in his intercession, uh, the life of prayer. And let's see what Elijah can teach us about what it means to be a needy, dependent, and yet bold servant of God who comes to God in prayer. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and listen to God's Word for us today. As we turn together to 1 Kings chapter 16, where Elijah's story begins, I want to bring to your attention the text from James that is printed in our bulletins this morning. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now that is an audacious interpretation of the life of Elijah and of its significance for us today. Elijah was a man just like us, the Scripture says. But if you know anything about Elijah, then you know that he was a man who was nothing like us at all. Elijah endured the great agricultural calamity of his times. He lived through a famine that lasted for three and a half years. Elijah staged the great religious showdown of his times. He faced the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven. Elijah executed the great judicial sentence of his times. He struck down 450 false prophets at the Kishon River. Elijah performed the great athletic feat 
of his times. He ran 17 miles from Carmel down to Jezreel, ahead of a horse and chariots. He gave food to the hungry. He brought the dead back to life. He spoke with God on the mountain. He did not die, but was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. This was a man just like us. And yet the scripture says that he was a man just like us. Elijah was a working man. He was a regular guy. He put on his sandals one foot at a time. He was a human being like we are, with a human nature like ours, and with human passions like ours, and with physical needs like ours. And this means that great prophet though he was, Elijah's faith and Elijah's obedience and Elijah's prayers are not out of reach for us. Elijah is for us a suitable example of the Christian life. Well, how was Elijah just like us? In 1 Kings 16, we see that he lived in an evil day. The seven kings of Israel after David and Solomon were a pretty sorry lot. Jeroboam, he set up idols. Then Nadab, he was an evildoer. Then Basha, he was a murderer. Then Elah, he was a drunkard. Then Zimri, he was bad. He murdered Elah. Then Omri, he was worse. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. Then Ahab, he was worst of all, which was no small accomplishment. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. How bad was Ahab? He was so bad that he considered the sins of his fathers to be nothing more than trivialities. Even a man as wicked as Omri may have been from time to time touched with some feeling of remorse or shame for his evil deeds. But not Ahab. If you had gone to him and said, hey, what you're doing isn't right, he would have said, what's your problem? Sin was nothing to Ahab. His conscience was inoculated against remorse. It was seared and cauterized against sorrow for sin. The sins of his fathers seemed trivial to him, mere nothings. There is a lesson in this for those of us who are parents of our need for the grace of God, lest the sins that we struggle against become trivialities to our children. How bad was Ahab? He was so bad that he married a wicked woman, verse 31. Ah, yes, the wicked queen Jezebel, the evil woman behind the evil man. They deserved each other, didn't they? Jezebel and Ahab, the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. There is a lesson in this about choosing a godly spouse. If you do marry, don't marry outside the family of God. But there's also a lesson in this about trusting in God's plans rather than making your own plans. Ahab was a schemer, and you can see what he was really up to by the way Scripture describes his marriage. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, a man whose middle name was Baal, you see. 
To marry her was a political move, establishing an alliance between Ahab and Ethbaal, between Israel and Sidon, and alas, between Israel and the false god Baal. Ahab's little scheme failed, of course, for his covenant with an earthly king could not and did not save his life in battle. In trying to save his life, he lost it, as we shall see. How bad was Ahab? He was so bad that it was not enough for him to marry a Baal worshiper. He wanted to be a Baal worshiper. Verse 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Baal and Asherah, the god of rain and the goddess of fortune. Ahab built an altar and a pole for these gods so that his subjects could join him in his religious apostasy and perhaps also in the temple prostitution that made Baal and Asherah worship so popular. I suppose Ahab was the David Koresh of his day. How bad was Ahab? Evil in the king soon became evil in the kingdom. And we are not surprised to read in verse 34 that in Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. This is a news clipping from Elijah's times. They were times when people deliberately did the things that God had commanded them not to do. Back in Joshua 6, when the walls came tumbling down, Joshua pronounced this curse upon the city of Jericho. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. What God says will come to pass, will come to pass, as Heel discovered. Perhaps he knew the prophecy and flouted it, doubting the reality of God's judgment. Perhaps he knew the prophecy and accepted it, sacrificing the lives of his sons. Perhaps he did not know the prophecy at all and was simply ignorant of the teaching of Scripture. But in any case, his actions were a symbol of an evil day when people disobeyed the word of God. Now, all of this is starting to sound familiar. For we live in a day when children consider the sins of their parents a trivial matter. In a day of casual sex and recreational drugs and gratuitous violence. And we live in a day when spiritual leaders trust in their own schemes rather than trusting in God's instructions for the growth of the church. And we live in a day when people bow down before the idols of money and power and beauty and self. We live in an evil day, a day when a man will lock a woman in a closet for two years so he can steal her social security checks. Elijah was a man just like us, you see, because he lived in an evil day. But he was also just like us because he knew the same God that we know. As we turn to the first few verses of 1 Kings 17, we meet 
Elijah's God. He's a God who lives. That's what Elijah testifies in verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Every one of these words is full of significance. The Lord, that means Jehovah, the name above every name, the special name for God given to Moses at the burning bush. The God of Israel, that means the God who has made a covenant with his people, the God who really is the God of Israel, even if Ahab is trying to forget about him. The Lord, the God of Israel, lives. This is where the emphasis especially falls on the fact that the Lord, the God of Israel, is a living God. This is a stinging rebuke to Ahab and the false God that he worshipped. It was a stinging rebuke to Ahab because his lifestyle was a denial that God is a God who lives. When Ahab considered sin trivial, and when he trusted in his own schemes, and when he set up idols to worship, what he was really doing was denying the existence of a living God. God is dead, he was saying by his actions. It doesn't matter what I do because there is no God to judge me for my sins. Do the actions of your life add up to a denial that God exists? The actions of Ahab's life did, but God would prove to him by the judgment he would bring that he is the living God. And what Elijah said was also a stinging rebuke to Ahab's false god. For Baal was not a god who lives. And I don't just mean that Baal was a false god and so he didn't have a real existence. What I mean is that even if you believed in Baal, you could not consider Baal a living god. You see, Baal was alive during the rainy season, but he was dead during the dry season. Baal was all wet, you might say, and that's a weak God to have in a dry climate. And so when Elijah stood before Ahab on that dry day and spoke of the living God, he was issuing a rebuke to Baal, the so-called rain god. Elijah's God, the living God, was Lord of both the dry season and the rainy season. Isn't that the God we know? Don't we serve a living God just like Elijah did? Yes, we do. Rain or shine, snow or hail, God is God. And this is all the more true for us than it was for Elijah, because God has now revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ by bringing Jesus Christ back to life and raising him up from the dead. God won the victory over death and proved that he was the living God and is the living God and will be the living God forever and forever. He is the God, as we have heard sung to us this morning, who intercedes for us. Elijah's God and our God is a God who lives. He's also a God who keeps his word. He certainly kept his word of judgment to Israel. This drought was not simply a random natural disaster, of course, but a specific punishment upon God's people for their sin. They trusted in the God of rain. And so the true and living God said that there wouldn't be any rain or even any dew for three and a half years. And there wasn't. 
because God keeps his word. As we read on into chapter 18, we will find poor King Ahab himself wandering in the wilderness, looking for some grass for his donkeys. Do not suppose that the judgments of Scripture are idle threats. If you have heard that God brings down the proud and that he punishes sin and that he has reserved fires of judgment for everyone who rebels against him, then believe it, for God is a God who keeps his word of judgment. But he also keeps his word of promise. God certainly kept his word of promise to Elijah. God said that Elijah would drink from the brook, and he did. God said that ravens would feed Elijah, and they did. Do not doubt that the promises of Scripture are trustworthy sayings. If you have heard that God exalts the humble and that he forgives sin for Jesus' sake and that he has prepared a heaven of joy for everyone who trusts in him, then believe it, for God is a God who keeps his word of promise. Elijah was a man just like us, serving the God we serve, a living God who keeps his word and also a God who cares for his people. When the dew dries up and the rain clouds disappear, Elijah does not shrivel up and blow away. No, because even in an evil day, God protects those who belong to him. God cares for his servants. Now, we should pay special attention to the extravagance of God's care for Elijah. God provides for Elijah not simply by extraordinary means, but with extraordinary abundance. It would be enough for God to give Elijah just enough to live on, enough for God to give him a little bread and a little water once a day. But he gives Elijah as much water as he cares to drink, and he sends him bread and meat twice a day. There is an aftertaste here of the food that God provided for his children in the wilderness. Do you remember how God cared for the people of Israel in the wilderness after he had brought them up out of Egypt? He gave them manna in the morning and quail in the evening, bread once a day and meat once a day. But Elijah is given a double portion of daily bread and daily meat. He had, in effect, pancakes and bacon for breakfast and an all-beef patty on a bun for dinner. Since the Scripture says that those who labor in the ministry of the Word are worthy of double honor, I cannot help wondering if God himself was showing double honor to Elijah as his prophet. This was a generous provision for a man who had preached only one short sermon. What an encouragement this is for all of those who serve the Lord, and especially for those who are called to pastoral ministry. Now, since Elijah really was a man just like us, then we should be men and women and young people just like him. Elijah teaches us how to live for God in an evil day. 
And his strategy for living for God in an evil day can be summarized in just three words. Pray. Obey. Stay. Now Elijah's three actions answer the attributes of the God that he served. Elijah is the kind of man that he is because his God is the kind of God he is. Because God is a living God, Elijah can pray to him. Because God keeps his word, Elijah can obey his word. Because God cares for his people, Elijah can stay where he belongs. Elijah is a praying, obeying, staying man because God is a living, word-keeping, caring God. First, Elijah prays. To live for God in an evil day is to become a man or a woman or a child of prayer. As we come to the first verse of 1 Kings 17, it seems like God is doing all the talking through Elijah to Ahab. But the book of James offers us this profound interpretation of the ministry of Elijah. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain. Elijah is held up as an example for us, not as a preacher, not as a prophet, not as a miracle worker, not as an athlete, but as a man of prayer. What James is saying is this, that the judgment that God announced to Ahab through Elijah was first prompted and stimulated by the prayers of Elijah. Before God talked to Ahab, Elijah talked to God. Before Elijah came to the palace gates in Samaria, he was in his prayer closet in Gilead. Before Elijah was on his feet before the throne of the king of Israel, he was on his knees before the throne of the king of kings. And Elijah had been in that closet on those knees for quite some time. If we study the scriptures carefully, we can figure out how long Elijah had been in prayer. If you flip over to the first verse of chapter 18, you can see that the famine ended in the third year. But James says that Elijah prayed earnestly and it did not rain for three and a half years. And not just James. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 4. He says it was three and a half years. And so it seems that Elijah had been in prayer for at least six months before he went to speak to Ahab. Well, no wonder that God chose Elijah to be his messenger. No wonder that when God needed a herald to go and speak divine judgment to Ahab, Elijah was just the man for the job. Elijah was already an intimate friend of God. He had already proven by his prayers that he was zealous and dependable, that he understood the Lord's purpose for his people, and that he was concerned about the Lord's work. Very likely, Elijah gave the same testimony that many of our missionaries have given, that the call to serve God begins with a burden to pray to God for a particular country or a particular problem or a particular person. And no wonder that this hillbilly from Gilead was so bold when he turned up at the gates of Ahab's palace. 
He was not swayed by public opinion. He was not dismayed by the sophistication of life at court. He was not intimidated by the queen who had put the prophets of the Lord to death. He had courage because he knew that he stood before the God who lives just as he had so often knelt before the God who lives. Elijah had the kind of spiritual boldness that is only given to those who linger in the presence of the living God. Are you a man or a woman or a child just like Elijah? Or are you timid in your witness for Christ? A winsome testimony is the proof of a lively prayer life. But a shallow prayer life will be exposed by a shallow ministry. Now, what do you think of the prayer that Elijah prayed when he did pray? Was it right for him to invite privation and suffering upon his own neighbors? Was it right for him to intercede for the land of milk and honey to be turned into a parched wilderness? Well, Elijah did get his prayer from the word of God. This is what the scripture says, Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce. Elijah was a student of the word of God and he was jealous for the glory of God. He knew that he lived in an evil day, and so he lived in the expectation that the judgment of God would be revealed against his people. More than that, he discerned that the prevailing sin of his day was idolatry, and so he knew precisely what kind of judgment to expect. And he was not afraid to pray for that judgment because he knew that spiritual apostasy is a greater disaster for a nation than physical calamity. He knew that moral delinquency is a greater disaster for the people of God than material suffering. He had a proper sense of what would bring glory to God, and he knew what his own people must suffer before they would turn back to God and before the Lord's favor would return to them. Why was it that Elijah prayed that it might not rain? A.W. Pink asks. Not because he was impervious to human suffering. Not because he took a fiendish delight in witnessing the misery of his neighbors. But because he put the glory of God before everything else, even before his own natural feelings. Is there a man or a woman, or a child among us, like Elijah, who would dare to pray such a prayer? Is there a man, or a woman, or child among us, like Elijah, who can shut the rain clouds up in heaven by prayer? Is there a man, or a woman, or a child among us, like Elijah, who can turn the hearts of God's people back to their God by prayer? 
If not, it is not because Elijah's prayer is out of reach. Because scripture says that he was a man just like us, and he was a man just like us in just this respect, that he was a man of prayer. If we are not just like Elijah, it must be because we are not men and women just like Elijah in prayer. We live in an evil day, so our prayers are as necessary as Elijah's prayers. And we serve a living God, so our prayers can be as efficacious as Elijah's prayers. And so may the Lord make us people of prayer so that we may pray the way that Elijah prayed, as it says in James, righteously, so that our prayers are undiluted by our disobedience, unhindered by unconfessed sin, powerfully so that our prayers prevail against the tide of idolatry in our day, effectively so that our prayers discern the very things that God intends to do in our day, earnestly, so that our knees grow strong through our persistence in prayer. To live for God in an evil day is to prevail in prayer. And it's also to obey. Verse 5, so Elijah did what the Lord had told him. Sometimes it's the simple things that give us the most trouble. But this is all that the Lord wanted from Elijah all that he wants from us, simple obedience to his revealed will. It may be that you are struggling to know the Lord's calling for your life right now. But if you are keen to walk with God and to obey him, you will find that his call will lead you just where you need to go, just when you need to go there. Following the call of God is like walking up a staircase in the dark, You can't see what lies ahead, perhaps, but step by step, if you keep climbing, you will reach out with your foot and find a firm place to stand all the way to the top. That's certainly the way it was for Elijah. When did God tell Elijah to go to Kareth? When did God give Elijah that instruction? Not until after He had delivered his message to Ahab. And so Elijah came that whole way down from Gilead to Ahab, not having the foggiest idea what God would have him do next. He simply uttered the judgment of God to Ahab and then waited for the call of God. And that call came just in time. And I can imagine that God's first words were like music to Elijah's ears. Leave here, the Lord said. Well, Elijah was nobody's fool. You weren't going to catch him hanging around near Jezebel very long. But then came an obedience that was not so easy. Hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. Well, this wasn't exactly the pension plan for retired prophets that Elijah had been hoping for. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Drink from the brook? But it's not going to rain for years, Elijah might have thought. Eat from the ravens? But they're just birds, he might have objected. But the scripture only says this, so he did 
what the Lord had told him. Elijah went to the place of God's provision. He practiced what he preached. For him to live for God in an evil day is simply to obey and also to stay. Elijah went to the Kareth Ravine east of Jordan, and he stayed there, the scripture says. We do not know how difficult it might have been for Elijah to stay at Kareth. Some have thought that God was hiding Elijah there to protect him from Jezebel, and he may have been. Others have suggested that Elijah's seclusion was a judgment on Israel, that by absenting his prophet from the land, God was punishing his people with a famine of his word as well as a drought of water. In either case, it may have been a trial for a man of speech and action like Elijah to be quiet and still for a time. We do not know. What we do know is that Elijah stayed right where God put him. And he stayed where God put him because he knew that God would stay with him. In what do you suppose was Elijah trusting when he stayed at Kareth? Was he trusting in the brook and the ravens? Surely Elijah was trusting not in the brook, but in the God who made the brook. Not in the ravens, but in the God who sent the ravens. He had learned to trust not in the means, but in the God of the means. He had learned to trust not in the outward circumstances of his provision, but in the God who provides. This is a valuable lesson if you are in uncomfortable circumstances. It may be easy to lower your gaze from the providence of God to your earthly needs for a job or for food or for clothing. Use proper wisdom about how to get what you do need, but lift your eyes to God and trust in him. And that's just as valuable a lesson if you are in comfortable circumstances. Whom do you trust for your daily bread? Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in the grocery store or in the paycheck that enables you to buy things at the grocery store? Not if you're just like Elijah, you don't. Your trust is in the living God. He is the one that you trust, and with him you will stay. And God will stay with you, and he will care for you, even if he has to use ravens to do it. The story is told of a cold, snowy winter night in a village in Germany. A snowy winter night when a boy and his mother were in a desperate situation. They had run out of food. The fire was out and there was nothing more to burn in the cottage. And so the mother was shocked as they prayed together to hear her son run across the room and fling the cottage door wide open to the cold night air. My son, why are you opening the door on such a cold night? It's for the raven's mother, said the little boy, for he knew the story of how God had provided for Elijah by the brook. And he trusted that God would send his ravens, snow or no snow. Now it so happened that the burgomeister of that village was walking about in the village And he was amazed to see an open door at the tiny home. 
and so he went to investigate. He met the woman at the door, and she explained that she and her son were waiting for God to send his ravens to provide for them. And so he said, I will be your raven, both now and ever. That mother and child were just like Elijah. For although they lived in an evil day, they knew the same God that Elijah knew. And they prayed to that God, and they obeyed that God, and they stayed with that God. And they discovered, as you will discover, that God is a living God who keeps his word and cares for his people. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how good it is to know the God that Elijah knew, the same God yesterday, today, and forever, a living God who cares for his people. And we rest in your provision. We say in our hearts that we will obey you and that we will stay with you. And we also ask, Father, that you will make us much, much more than we are, people of prayer, so that you can do your work through us in this world for the glory of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Riken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>